Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to our premiere episode. We on our fancy politics always find ourselves detouring quite a bit from the strictly political. And yeah, so, so we thought, we well, let's just do that. Yeah, let's just let's just let's just find a space for that so we can talk as long as humanly possible about these issues that really concern us. So as we do on Pantsy Politics, we're going to do three blocks in every episode of The Nuanced Life. And in the first block of each episode, we're going to talk about a person, place, or thing, or idea that makes me think a little schoolhouse rock <laughs> that is interesting us right now. And then in block B, we'll explore a singular question that we want to wrestle a little bit more with in depth. And then we'll end the show with a quote or something really tangible that we want to leave everyone with related to our deep dive discussion. So first up, Beth, you have an article you are currently obsessing about. I am obsessed with it. I don't know if it's unreasonable to ask every single person you know to read something. I do it all the time. That's kind of where I am on this article. (laughs) I just corner people and I'm like, I need you to read this book. Person I barely met at this cocktail party. The Atlantic has a fantastic read about this company in Japan that talks about how they are more than real. They rent out actors to serve as family members, friends, husbands for fake weddings, dads for children. And these are like lies that are sustained over long periods of time. They interviewed an actor who plays a dad for a child and like he has regular visits with this girl and understands that he's committed to doing this indefinitely. Yeah, at first when I started reading, I was like, okay, so this is like, you know, like an escort service for events. Like I had like a framework in my brain and then they just exploded it. No, it's intense. It's emotionally intense. Like they are developing characters and showing up as those characters and growing relationships over time. And that's the point for them to grow these relationships over time to substitute and fill in gaps in people's lives. But is it a relationship if it's built on a lie? That's what I keep thinking about. This really pushes me to think about what is true and what does it mean to be in relationship with each other? Because on the one hand, you read this article and it's a little bit terrifying. Mm. 
One example that comes up in the article is a grandfather who wanted to see the birth of his granddaughter and wasn't going to live in time for the baby to be born. So they hired an infant to come be the baby so that the grandfather could hold the baby before passing away. There is something terrifying about that, especially when you think about being the parent of the infant who is acting before they are able to open their eyes for a long period of time. But also, there's something kind of beautiful about giving yeah, that someone one bothers me a something lot less. to hold on to. Like, because it's a one-off. Nobody's really harmed. The baby is never going to know it did that. The grandpa's going to die. He gets sort of the nice moment. That one bothers me much less than the, like, sustained actor daddy over decades. And so let's talk about actor daddy over decades. Because I can see believing that giving my child a father figure and one who I know will be there regardless of his relationship with me, feels pretty good. The part that bugs me about it is the lie. Yeah. But how do you That's explain a pretty big to part. a child what the, at what point is it appropriate to say to a child, you know, this is Todd. He's not your dad, but you're going to hang out with Todd twice a week because you need, I mean, I don't know. I, and I've created Todd. I've given Todd a script for who he's supposed to be. I understand wanting to do that. It yeah, does but then take you away think, from the imperfection of the human experience that is an important part of it, though. Right. You want to do that, and then you remember that life is not a television show that you can edit and produce. Right. And that th- even if it were, these television shows in badly, y'all. Like, these plot lines on television shows don't even work out. Because it's built on a lie. You can't build a relationship on a lie. I don't know how to make it simpler than that. But lots of us build relationships on lies. Yeah, so and another they never thing- end well. Another thing that I'm obsessed with right now is Where Should We Begin, Esther Perel's podcast, where she conducts couples counseling and records it as a podcast. It's beautiful to listen to. It's not going to be for everybody's taste, but I really love it. And there was this couple that had a 40-year, very, very happy marriage that included children and all kinds of life events where the wife and the husband were friends and the wife said he was at home all the time he was a great dad I felt supported they had a good sex life and then she finds out that for the entirety of their marriage he has had a sex addiction and has had numerous sexual partners has paid for sex he's had a double life for their entire marriage and that made me think about this article, too, right? Because what is true? What does it mean to be in relationship with each other? What did Esther Perel say? She said that if this couple is able to overcome this, it will be because they had a good marriage. It will be because they had, she said, especially because they had a good sex life. And she said, you know, the wife has the ability to understand that they had a good marriage, that her experience was true. And that he had this additional life that had nothing to do with her. That it wasn't a reflection of their marriage. That what was going on over to the side was not about her. Okay, but here's the thing. People have a sex addiction or any kind of addiction because they have a source of deep pain or conflict. And in what way could he compartmentalize the cause of the addiction in the same way that he compartmentalize the addiction itself in a way it would not affect this quote-unquote perfect marriage like I just I don't believe I can't I can't put those two pieces together so he had been abused as a child sexually 
and had not told his wife about that. And so he was living a giant secret. And I don't know what played out between them, obviously, throughout their marriage. The other thing that Esther Perel said, though, is that that he had to, now that he was coming to grips with his own pain and what caused him to do this, he also had to come to grips with the fact that he had caused her enormous pain. Mm -hmm. We can't just stop life and have a big pity party for you. You have to understand that you inflicted this on her. She was basically like, it's always, always, always just been about you. And if you want to move past this, it has to be about both of you. So I was thinking about that in relation to this article about Japan, right? Because would I rather find out that the person I've been married to has been hiding this entire life from me or that someone hired him to give me a beautiful life? I mean, I don't know. Like, this is all really fascinating to me. To I don't know why I have to pick. I mean, I just think that at the end of the day, relationships are built on intimacy. And intimacy is about being vulnerable and exposing your true self to another person because you trust that they are being vulnerable and exposing their true self to you as well. And if that is not true, if what they are exposing is a lie or they are keeping a secret, then it is a false intimacy. And then you feel betrayed. You feel like everything you exposed was based on a trick. And now you have huge trust issues. Now you don't know who to trust, who to be vulnerable with. You have to rethink every intimate encounter you had with this person, every intimate encounter you have with other people. Look, we are, I think that this is built on a flip-flopped sort of understanding of our own brains. Like we have big monkey brains and monkeys are not complicated and we have little tiny people processing brains. And maybe if the size and function were switched and we had big human processing brains, maybe we can make this work. But we're mostly instinctual emotional creatures that have to believe that what I see and feel and am trusting is the intimate, vulnerable truth that someone is showing me is in fact the truth. And I think anything else is a recipe for disaster. And that's why we have so much disaster, right? Because we Mm -hmm. have these expectations of each other that we can't live up to. Because the article from Japan and this um, Esther Perel podcast are extreme examples. But I was reading on another article about the sexual harassment allegations going on right now. Not just allegations, but like stories of tsunami that people have suffered. And how when people say that sexual abuse is about power part of what they mean is it's about the seduction of a double life mm. that that a guy can look like a school board member and a, a treasurer for his organization you know the vp of finance or whatever and such a great dad but secretly be a very bad man right who is hitting on all the women he works with And that that seduction of being two people and not getting caught in it or almost getting caught but not quite is why a lot of men do this. That's the form that the power takes. And I mean, even if you think about like the secret life of Walter Mitty, right, there is always this bent for people on having some secrets, having some parts of themselves that other people don't experience. And I wonder at what point we can really have a conversation about what we expect of each other in that way. So I think there's a very gendered component of this. Yeah, for sure. In that I think that human beings, whether you identify as type A or not, 
um, because we are on a tiny blue planet hurtling through an um, infinite universe, which can be a little intimidating for our monkey brains, like to feel a sense of control. And so I think the way we exercise this as men and women are very, very different. Um, I think that women, and this leads into the article I want to talk to talk about, which is about emotional labor. I think that women exercise that control by controlling themselves and giving of themselves because that's what we've been taught we should do. And men exercise that control and their vulnerability in, in, in a response to their inherent vulnerabilities, human beings by exercising control on other people. So I think it's like mm-hmm. an external focus of control because we tell men to take and we tell women to give. So, you know, in this, I introduced you to the Esther Perel show because my friend Laura introduced me to the Esther Perel show through one episode, which was fascinating because it was a lesbian couple, which removes the sort of traditional gendered breakdown in marriage conflicts. And so you had one woman who felt um, like she was giving everything to her children she resented being asked for sex, being resented being asked for sort of like anything from the other woman who was sort of the main provider and not the more um, emotionally labor-intensive partner, okay? And she was really – I loved what she said at, th- at one point because I was a stay-at-home mom primarily for several years and said um, what you really want to do at the end of the day as a stay-at-home mom is connect with yourself, not connect with somebody else, um, which I thought was so good. And so I think you see that play out inside marriages, but removing the gender component was really fascinating to me and sort of illustrated this emotional labor in a huge and different way. But, I mean, I think that all of this is wrapped up in, like I said, the way we talk about masculinity and femininity and what a good man is and what a good woman is and how they act particularly in relationship to other people. And I think particularly with men, um, including predatory men, I think it is. I think it's about I take, I control other people. That's what makes me feel less vulnerable um, in my life. So let's talk about emotional labor. Can you sort of set that article up, Sarah? There was a really great article in Harper's Bazaar about emotional labor, particularly performed by women. And it was just a really personal um, account from this one woman that I very much identified with, which is, you know, I've had a lot of, com- I have a, first of all, I have a very amazing husband who does a lot of the household labor. However, the emotional labor of sort of doc- doctor's visits, just the keeping the, managing the family, the, like the family CEO, doctor's visits, homework, birthday parties, gifts, all that sort of the emotional work of tending to all these extended relationships often falls to the woman. And she was just saying, like, you know, she'll reach out to her husband and say, like, I need help. And he'll be like, well, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And she's like, you don't understand. I don't want to have to manage you, too. I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to understand what needs to happen and how I particularly identified with the defensiveness of her husband because my husband, like, gets so defensive, like, like I am insulting his and telling him he's a bad person. And it's just, you know, it's very complicated. It's a lot. But I just, I felt like that woman was in my head. And I've had some really good conversations with my husband since reading the article. I have abdicated birthday parties in 2018. I will not be doing those. I am no longer doing, I don't pay any attention to homework or accelerated reader or any of that crap. He's in charge of that. Um, but we just had a conversation about like, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Like I want... I want help with the 
it's just a lot of processing power to to keep up with three kids and everything. And our kids like don't do anything after school. Like God help me if I added all that stuff. So it was just really helpful inside my relationship. And I've just I see the threads of that running through so many conversations I have with my girlfriends about marriages and the conflict inside marriages. I just really loved it. I thought it was a great article, too. I've been trying to think about how it applies in my marriage and marriages like mine, because Chad and I have both worked full time jobs outside the home since we graduated from our university studies. And we have both worked kind of more than full-time jobs, the kind of jobs that you're never really off. You're expected to take calls and answer emails all hours of the day and on the weekends. Chad's job has been more flexible than mine in some ways because he works from home and then travels some. So he doesn't see a boss every day and work in an office setting. And that is what I have done for 11 years. So I've been the person who leaves and comes home at the end of the day. And that's a really gender flipping dynamic Mm -hmm. in a marriage too, right? That Chad is mostly here during the day. And so he is more able than I am to mow the lawn over his lunch hour, right? And, And I'm the one who is gone for a very long time and comes back kind of spent. I've given everybody else what I have and I get home and I don't have a lot of space for other people, especially because I'm an introvert and I need to recharge. So our emotional labor breakdown is not the traditional gendered breakdown. I think we both do a lot of it. I think more about doctor appointments, but I don't want to discount the emotional labor Chad does. He mostly thinks about our bills. He mostly thinks about what happens if our air conditioner is not working. Uh, He solely carries out a lot of those responsibilities. And so I think it's interesting to watch the evolution of this, but I liked about this article that it values that because it is labor and it is draining. Yeah, it is. When I have a doctor's appointment that I need to make hanging over my head or a project that Jane needs to turn in and she needs 10 supplies for that we don't have or whatever, it's a lot. And I think this article helped me value Chad's emotional labor more because he does contribute a lot of that in our household and it is draining for him too. And when you have both people working outside the home and carrying this emotional labor, that presents Like that manifests for us in decision fatigue. Like our biggest conflicts are things like who's going to decide what to have for dinner because we both just want someone else to figure it out. Well, and I think that what, you know, what I think a lot about is when we do things inside of our marriage, like are they transactional or are they ongoing? Like I told Nicholas, like you cook dinner every night, but a lot of nights you don't cook dinner. We go to church, we go out with my parents, we go out and eat, and that doesn't stack up with you in the way that let's say, um, doing the laundry, which is sort of what I do, which I can't if I can't skip it, right? It's not something I can outsource in the way you can cooking. And I think that happens a lot with sort of, not that cooking is a traditional male task, but there's like a lot of, it seems like the breakdown in task, like men take the transactional task, women take the like relationship or sort of ongoing ones that you can't outsource. And so that's what I was really trying to think about. Like, I want to make sure that you have things that are like really never fully checked off the list. Like laundry's never fully checked off the list in the way in a way that, you know, fixing the air conditioner is, although that shit breaks all the time too. But you know what I mean? Like I was trying to think through I think some of the emotional labor part is that it's not a task, it's attending. It's a constant tending. Yeah, which kind of makes me think because I've been listening to so much Esther Perel about sex and how 
I think at different times, different people take the emotional labor of tending that part of the relationship. And that's labor too, mm-hmm. right? And and even though I think as women, we tend to sort of default to the idea that like, it's a chore for me and it's important to you. There is a huge part of every relationship that is about tending that aspect of it that also drains us. Well, and let me say, too, that I think this plays out far beyond just marriages, this sort of gendered approach to labor. Like, believe that I think a lot of the emotional labor in my church and the emotional labor at schools and at work is done by women and the transactional labor is done by men. Like, I think that this plays out in lots of places beyond just marriages and parenting. And the emotional labor is so much less valued than the transactional Mm -hmm. labor, even though that is the labor that keeps it all happening, that constant tending. I mean, that's the point about sex within a marriage, right? Like that kind of tending is the kind of tending that really helps a relationship grow and expand and the kind of labor that happens in schools and churches. And let's face it, workplaces and pretty much every kind of institution where women are tending their relationships, that's what keeps it all going. But we reward the more transactional type of work. Yep. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Well, that's kind of a good segue into our deeper dive. We wanted to talk a little bit about an article in the New York Times called How to Live Wisely. So How to Live Wisely was an article in the New York Times that approached... What, well, I think there's one interesting component of this, which is college students right now are like sort of coming to college and being like, we need you to teach us how to be a good human being, not just like teach us about history, which I think is super fascinating in its own right. But in one college, they've sort of crafted this path and sort of this sort of these questions and examinations to help students think through as you grow and as you become an adult and make decisions. These are ways to sort of check in with yourself and with your values to make sure you are living wisely. I mean, they're literally trying to teach them how to do that. Which I think is great. Yeah, I know that there are people who would quibble with that. I think so much more of our educational systems ought to be about what kind of person do you want to be, not just here are the multiplication tables. I mean, in theory, this would be happening in families, too. But more than one location is not a bad idea. I mean, and I think that the interesting cultural commentary is I don't think it's – I think that – students, millennials, whatever you want to call them, react to what they feel like. I see this with my cousins. I think they're reacting to what they feel like were choices that their parents made. They can't exactly articulate why it doesn't appeal to them, but they want to take a different path, which I think is, listen, I think it's interesting. Well, because I think that what is happening within families to teach these kinds of skills, because we're talking about what? Emotional intelligence, self-awareness, resilience, connecting your values to your behaviors. Families teach those skills almost exclusively through modeling. Mm -hmm. Schools are so busy trying to teach you all the other things that you need 
that you don't get a lot of space for these things. But now they're building them back into the curriculum because they're not coming in anywhere else. Churches are a place for this to happen, but most of us aren't going to churches anymore. And churches have become somewhat problematic in different ways. We, we both love our churches, but that's not everyone's experience. I think so much of this is generational. That's an understatement. Let me expand on that. I think that it's hard to reckon, and I don't really think we have as a culture, and we don't talk about it a lot because we like to move on quickly from grief, how impactful September 11th and in a related but different way, the economic recession um, impacts a generation. And so there is an emphasis on safety and um, sort of a life well lived in a way that if you have a generation that felt safe in a way through the 50s in particular, although it's not like the 60s was not a rocking safety, you know, undermining time, but sort of that post-World War II generation you know, felt safe and protected, that then you could emphasize living successfully in a different way than living wisely. So we can externalize and look to other th- things because we feel like we ha- we're we standing on solid ground. You know what I mean? I do. And I think that it also speaks to the choices available. Mm. Generationally, it's not just women having more options, option doors that were previously closed to women. That's true for lots of people. It's also that we do have this weird intersection of the service economy and the tech economy that allows lots of jobs to be invented. And really, some of the best jobs are the jobs that are being invented. And so instead of saying, gosh, do I want to work in a factory or do I want to be a professional or do I want to teach? There are so many paths and a better understanding that, like, maybe you might not stay on one of those paths for the duration of your life. And that's okay, too. Yeah. So let's dive into some of the questions. So the How to Live Wisely article starts just simply with what matters to you and how well do your commitments match your goals. And then it takes from there, it goes into what do you really want to be and how do you want to spend your spare time? And that one for the students is focused more on choosing a major. And I think that's a great framework to operate within to choose a major. Yeah. How about do you want spare time? That could also emphasize what kind of major you pick. Well, and I think that the, the, I think it, it was way too far in my life before I looked around and was like, hold up, how am I spending my time? And I think, kids crystallized this in a way because you're sort of always on a ticking clock with kids and you just have less time so you really start to think about it because I think it's so easy to let the urgent overwhelm the important and to sort of start ticking the next box do what's expected of you because you don't have your own values and commitments in place yet at a young age and then you sort of look around and you have a life that you I think this happens to a lot of people in middle age right they look they look around they're like hold up this is not what I envisioned because you're just taking the next step as opposed to looking up, looking around, and looking farther down the road. I absolutely agree with that. I, You are ahead of me on this curve because my path has been pretty linear until the past couple of years. You know, I tell people all the time now that I do more research to buy, like, a new television than I put into going to law school. I marched along a path because I was a successful student but didn't like math and science, I went to college. I got a business degree because I 
realized that being an opera singer was going to be a different kind of lifestyle than the one that I wanted. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And both understanding that maybe I wasn't talented enough to do that and also that that is a very hard road made me decide to go the business route. And then I went to law school because I didn't know what else to do. And I was smart, right? And I was smart in a particular way. And then from law school, I went to a big firm because I had that opportunity. And I looked at this offer letter saying, here's your 401k, here's your salary. And as a person who grew up on a dairy farm in Western Kentucky, I didn't feel like I could say no to that. And so Mm -hmm. I just kind of kept marching along like a little ant on this path and woke up one day and realized this is a lot of people's dream that I'm living and it is not mine. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I think that when you talk about modeling, I think that's part of the reason I made different choices. And I think that's part of the source of my passionate dedication to my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, which is I grew up and I looked around and I saw a whole lot of adults, including my own parents, that enjoyed what they did but were not defined by it that were defined by their families and their church community and their commitments outside in the community and who, you know, jobs were fulfilling and important and you wanted to make sure it was something you enjoyed, but it was not the whole of your, most certainly not the whole of your identity and um, was really, was put in its place. You know, I tell people when I lived in Washington, D.C., the first thing people always ask you is, who do you work for? And when you when I moved back to Paducah, the first thing I noticed is that people say, oh, do you have any kids? Where do you go to church? <laughs> like It's just the community is oriented very differently. And so I think that just it got deep in my bones. I think I grew up seeing it. I grew up seeing what I felt like were happy people, fulfilled people, people who enjoyed their lives um, in my own family and my church community. And I just thought, yeah, that's what I want. I want to have the freedom to travel Um, I want to have a nice home, but not a giant home. I want to have kids that I get to enjoy and see regularly. Like when I was growing up, I didn't have a single friend who had a stay-at-home mom. Everybody but one's mother was a teacher. So that means they worked, they did their jobs, they enjoyed it, and they were home when their kids got off the bus, and they were home in the summers. And I just thought, yeah, this is – I think this – I don't know if I ever consciously thought it – But I realized I thought I wanted to go out and sort of tackle the world because that's what the other huge input in my life growing up, which was the media, told me. And then I got out there and I was like, yeah, y'all don't seem happier than the people I grew up with. So I'm going to go back there. And I think I just sort of internalized that message. They were probably competing for a while. And then thankfully, Paducah went out. The Paducah philosophy. That's what I'm going to call it. So, and we differ pretty markedly on that, which is something I'm sure we'll get into in future episodes. I wanted to ask you, so I'm looking at all these questions. So first they ask what matters to you? How do your commitments line up with your goals? What do you want to be? How do you want to spend your spare time? Then it goes more into what are your core values? And would you rather be 
broad versus deep? Do you want to be extraordinarily good at one thing or do you want to be more of a horizontal thinker? Um, I'm reading all of this as a mother and wanting to do a good job modeling for my kids and also wanting to have these conversations with my kids so that they aren't solely dependent on a college that has come up with a philosophy like this, right? And they're and they're able to answer these questions once they get to college. I'm wondering at what point kids develop the capacity to start to talk about these things. Way sooner than we give them credit for. Yeah, I think that's right. That's my answer. Way sooner. My Particularly my eldest, who's eight years old, is hyper aware of sort of what his father and I are worrying about, what we, what our values are, what we think is important, and really wants to like model that and be seen as sort of a good Holland. <laughs> I don't know. There's another word for it. Um, but just very, yeah, he's just like into it. He's watching he is definitely aware about like what we think is important as a family um, from politics to, like I said, Paducah to the work we do, all of it. I think it's interesting to try to think because my oldest is six and I agree. She is much more tuned in for the most part. You know, there are times when she's decidedly in her own world, but she's much more tuned in to the dynamic of our family than we probably are cognizant of most of the time. I keep trying to come up with a way to impart values to her and model behaviors and show her a way to live that is wise without making her feel like this is the only way. I had this struggle when we made the decision to go back to church after being out of the church for more than a decade because I didn't want her to learn religion in a dogmatic way or to feel like there's this literal path that she has to follow that imparts guilt and uh, compliance with resentment is a phrase I've been using a lot lately. (laughs) So can I give her a flexible worldview in as much as a six-year-old can can get to that, which I think leads to the last part of this exercise from How to Live Wisely. It's a parable about a fisherman, and he goes fishing on an island for several hours a day. He catches a few fish. He sells them to his friends and relaxes with his family for the rest of the day. And then somebody comes to the island with an MBA who sees the opportunity that this fisherman has to become rich. He can catch more fish and start a business and do some marketing and maybe even issue an IPO eventually for an entire cannery. And with all of these earnings that he makes, he can start to like donate fish to hungry children and save people's lives. And then the fisherman says, then what? And the visitor says, then you could spend lots of time with your family, yet you would have made a difference in the world. You would have used your talent and fed some poor children instead of just lying around all day. And the students are asked to to decide what to do with that. And I think that gets to the sense of if you can, you should mentality that has driven a whole lot of my decision making throughout my life. And here in my mid 30s, I don't really want to give that sense of if you can, you should to my six-year-old, but I also want her to be aware of the obligation to give to others. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Sarah. Well, I think the parable needs some tweaking because they say he could catch more fish. Oh, but you also get to spend lots of time with your family. Well, if you're catching more fish, you're spending less time with your family. And the idea of like just lying around is what he was doing when he stopped when he was done, as opposed to sort of 
you know, I would push back on the conscious, conscientious impact of catching more fish and marketing the fish. I mean, those are all resources. It's not just about if you can, you should. It's about the impact of using more resources, even if in one defined objective you're making more good. But that is probably another podcast. But what I would say is I think that for what I try to do with regards to my children and with my boys is I think this goes back to my um, point about the generations and a feeling of safety. I think I try to tell to to impart a firm set of values not because I want them compliant because but because I want them to understand there's they are standing on solid ground that our family has a set of values that we feel strongly about and that they're not really negotiable respect for other human beings is not negotiable respect and love for your family is not negotiable like not because again not with an emphasis on compliance but with a feel, feeling of confidence and safety and an understanding of what is true, what is due north. You know what I mean? Like a directional sense. And like I don't make them super specific, except for the whole you have to move back to Paducah. Kidding. I don't tell them that. Only sort of sometimes I do. Um, but like that, I, I just think that if you give them like, that there is safety in confidence and par- in parameters, because that's what I felt growing up. And I... Um, I'm a pretty self-assured, confident person, and I think it's because I felt the sense of there are some things that you can depend on that you can trust to be true. These are what they are. Um, let's move forward. Now, part of that comes from an intense sense of and position of privilege that what I was told to trust was dependable and for a lot of privileged reasons. But, you know, I just I, that's what I try to impart to them is not you can't, can't make choices, but we do have values that are important that you need to sort of keep as your foundation no matter what choices you make. I think that's our philosophy as well. And I try then to really stretch myself to keep those as broad as possible mm. and to let my daughters explore within that landscape very fully even if that exploration leads them to places that I'm not super comfortable with. An example is my six-year-old loves cheerleading. She just Mm -hmm. does. I wish she didn't, but she does. And I don't know why I wish she didn't. Like, that's my own baggage and stuff, right? And when I look at what this can do for her, it's she's moving her body. She's getting stronger. She's learning to work with other kids as a team, it's all totally appropriate at this point. And so I need to support her in that and not bring my own garbage to that party. Because when I think, when I zoom way out and ask these questions, what matters to me? Part of what matters to me is developing a really independent, confident kid. And so she's got to make her own choices. She doesn't need to play the piano because I played the piano. And that takes, I think, this kind of refreshed introspection. A hard part of this entire discussion is that there is a lot of privilege underlying it. There is a lot of luxury in being able to say, gosh, I want to live wisely. I want to cultivate this really lovely Mm -hmm. life for myself. And that's not available to everyone. So I feel like a sense that I'm not absolved from asking these questions since I have that luxury and that privilege. But I also need to constantly be mindful that not everyone does. Well, and but I will say this. I also think we have to be careful and understand that there are people who live 
and what our current framework we would understand as not privileged you can call it poverty you can call it the third world you can call it any number of things who do live wisely absolutely who do That's well are, are happy and have lives that we would think of as simple um not because they're better just but because the complexity of modern life is absent in a lot of places in this um world and it's not i mean and it's not just always an unequivocal good thing to add the complexities of modern life i think is another understatement it's the complications they might produce the privilege in which we have to ask these questions but they also sort of produce the crisis in which we feel we have to ask them in the first place you know what i mean like yeah that's so true I think that's part of it, too. And to your part about your girls, I remember one time hearing Demi Moore see this on Oprah. I don't look to Demi Moore for a lot of life advice, but I remember her saying, I just try to look um, to what my kids need and not what I need as a person. Like, I just try to look at what their individual needs and what not what I need from them. Because whether we want to or not, I think a lot of what we do with our kids is exercise sort of what wasn't given to us or what we need on an individual level. And it's just really it is a difficult uphill battle not to do that. Um, and to just give them or let them be what they want to be. Um, I think, though, that what was imparted to me, my family and my my mother and my grandmother did a very good job of sort of playing both sides of independence and connectedness. Like, they raised me to be independent. It was important to, you know, provide for yourself and to make choices and not to depend and not to become a burden on other people at the same time, preventing this very lovely um, version of connectedness to community and to family and why that was important. Um, So I guess that's what I try to do with my kids is sort of walk the line between both of those things. I think the key of what you said from Demi Moore is from them. You try to think about what they need, not what you need from them. I do think part of modeling for your kids is thinking about what you do need. Mm-hmm. And I I don't think that I can model behaviors that are totally inconsistent from what I would want for my daughters in this sort of martyr way. Right. And that's what a lot of us do, right? I work myself to death so that I can save tons of money so you can go to a great school and have a different life than this when you have to work as hard as me. Okay. If I'm instilling through every action and word I do for my entire life, that the most important thing is making money. That is the value that I'm teaching my kids, whether it's the one I want to be teaching them or not. Right. And if I tell them, I mean, I am so touched and more so as I get older by my father's decision to leave a very lucrative career in lending to be a farmer with his dad because that's what he really wanted to do. And because his set of values were to go be with his father. And I think that that implanted itself in my brain early on and has always been there. And I think that's part of why I have a little bit of an entrepreneurial bug where I really don't want to be beholden to what other people say, because agriculture is a lot about it's just you and the land. Right. (laughs) And I think it's also why I have some risk tolerance, because farming is so much at the whim of Mother Nature. And I think that it's why I keep returning to, okay, at some point. What do I really want to be doing and how do I frame up my life that way? But what my dad did is so much more influential for me than any conversation that we've ever had. And I have to remember that all the time with my kids, too. 
Yeah, I literally looked around and realized, like, at one point, no one in my family has a boss. Like, no one. My stepdad is a real estate agent. My mom is a librarian, so she sort of has the principle. But really, if you've ever been to school, a library is like a kingdom unto itself. And same for my uncles, our step-on tool salesman. My aunt uh, was an interior designer. Now she's a real estate agent. Like, it's just like one person after the other. Literally, like, nobody works a nine-to-five job. It's kind of funny, except for I've never worked a nine-to-five job, but like two times for very short periods of my whole life. And I used to think there was something wrong with me. And then I looked around and was like, wait, this is what I grew up seeing. Of course, this is what I do. So it's important, I think, as parents, especially if we want our kids to be able to answer questions like this, to think about how we we shouldn't extract these things that we need from them. We should extract these things from other places for them, mm. right, to model a, a life lived wisely instead of telling our kids one thing and doing another. Absolutely. So we wanted to end every episode with... A little gem to take away. And today we're going to start with one of our favorites, Richard Rohr. If you listen to Pantsy Politics, you know that Richard Rohr is our spirit animal. Mm. And so we're going to end with him today. He says in his book, Falling Upward, there is much evidence on several levels that there are at least two major tasks to human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity The second is to find the contents that that container was meant to hold. So we hope to continue to pursue the second question here on The Nuanced Life, and we hope you will continue to join us on that journey. We have also decided to end every episode of The Nuanced Life the same way we end Pansy Politics because, in truth, it was the inspiration for the show and, of course, the title. So we end every episode of Pansy Politics, and we will now end every episode of The Nuanced Life with a simple task. Keep it nuanced, y'all.